0: Section eighteen of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Musicians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Musicians by Albert Hubbard. Chapter five, part two. George Handel. But London is making head. Other good men and true are coming to town. Handel does not know much about them or care, perhaps. His wonderful energy is now manifesting itself in the work of managing theatres and concerts, giving lessons and composing songs, arias, operas, and attending receptions where the ladies refrain from hoops for fear of the crush, to use the language of Samuel Pepys. In shirt-sleeves, in a cheap seat in the pit, at one of Handel's performances, is a big lout of a fellow with scars of scrofula on his neck and cheek. Next to him is a little man, and these two, so chummy and confidential, suggest the long and short of it they are countrymen recently arrived empty of pocket but full of hope they have a selfish eye on the stage for the big un has written a play and wants to get it produced the little man's name is david garrick the other is samuel johnson they listen to the singing and finally samuel turns to his friend and says i say davy music is nothing but a noise that is less disagreeable than some others they would go away with these two but they have paid good money to get in and so sit it out disgustedly watching the audience and the play alternately. In one of the boxes is a weazened little man, all out of drawing, in a black velvet doublet, satin breeches, and silk stockings. At his side is a rudimentary sword. The man's face is sallow, and shrewdness and selfishness are shown in every line. He looks like a baby, suddenly grown old. The two friends in the pit have seen this man before, but they have never met him face to face, because they do not belong in his set." do you think god is proud of a work like that at last asked davy jerking his thumb toward the bad modeling in courtly black god never made him the big man swayed in his seat and added god had nothing to do with him he is the child of beelzebub. think ye so asks davy why mephisto has some pretty good traits but alexander pope is as crooked as an interrogation point inside and out i hear he wears five pairs of stockings to fill out his shanks and sole leather stays to keep him from flattening out like a devilfish said dr johnson but he makes a lot of money well he has to, for he pays an old woman a hundred guineas a year to dress and undress him i know but she writes his heroic couplets too davy i fear you're getting cynical let's change the subject it surely is a case of artistic jealousy our friends locate the poet gay a fat little man who is with his publisher rich they say says samuel again rolling in his seat as if about to have an apoplectic fit they say that gay has become rich and rich has become gay since they got out that last book there comes an interlude in the play and our friends get up to stretch their legs how now dick savage calls samuel as he pushes three men over like nine pins, to seize a shabby fellow whose neckcloth and haircut betray him as being a poet how now dick you said that italian music was damnably bad why do you come to hear it i came to find out how bad it is replied the literary man eh your reverence he adds to his companion a sharp-nosed man with china-blue eyes in church of england knee-breeches high-cut vest and shovel hat dean swift replies with a knowing smirk which is the nearest approach to a laugh in which he ever indulged then he takes out his snuff-box and taps it which is a sign that he is going to say something worth while yes one must go everywhere and do everything just to find out how bad things are by this means we clergymen are able to intelligently warn our flocks but i came to-night to hear that rogue bononcini you know he is from county down i used to go to school with him and the dean solemnly passes the snuff-box garrick here bursts into a laugh which is broken off short by a reproving look from the dean who has gotten the snuff-box back and is meditatively tapping it again the friends listen and hear from the muttering lips of the dean this some say that signore bononcini compared to handel is a ninny whilst others vow that to him handel is hardly fit to hold a candle strange all this difference should be twixt tweedledum and tweedledee the people are tumbling back to their seats as the musicians come stringing in soon there is a general tuning up scrapings toots snorts subdued screeches raspings and all that busy buzz fuzz business of getting ready to play the first time we came to the opera dr johnson thought this was all part of the play and applauded with unction for an encore says garrick and i heard nothing finer the whole evening answers dr johnson accepting the defy and winning by yielding why don't they tune up at home or behind the scenes asked some one i'll tell you why says savage and he relates this Handel is a great man for system. He is a strict disciplinarian, as any man must be to manage musicians, who are neither men nor women but a third sex. Often Handel has to knock their heads together, and once he shook the cazzoni until her teeth chattered. "'That's the way you have to treat any woman before she will respect you,' interrupts the dean. Nothing else being forthcoming, Savage continues, "'Handel is absolute master of everything but death and destiny.' Now, he didn't like all this tuning up before the audience. He said you might as well expect the prima donna to make her toilet in front of the curtain. I like the idea, says Johnson. Savage praises the interruption and continues, and so ordered every man to tune up his artillery a half hour before the performance and carry his instrument in and lay it on his chair. Then, when it came time to commence, every musician would walk in, take up his instrument, and begin. The order was given and all tuned up. Then the players all adjourned for their refreshments. In the interval a wag entered and threw every instrument out of key. It came time to begin. The players marched in like soldiers. Handel was in his place. He rapped once. Every player seized his instrument as though it were a musket. At the second rap the music began. And such music! Some of the strings were drawn so tight that they snapped at the first touch. Others merely flapped. Some growled, and others groaned and moaned or squealed. Handel thought the orchestra was just playing him a scurvy trick he leaped upon the stage kicked a hole in the bass viol and smashed the kettle drum around the neck of the nearest performer the players fled before the assault and he bombarded them with cornets and french horns as they tumbled down the stairs the audience roared with delight and not one in forty guessed that it was not a specially arranged italian feature but since that evening all tuning up is done on the stage and no man lets his instrument get out of his hands after he gets it right "'It's a moving tale invented as an excuse for a man who writes music so bad that he gets disgusted with it himself and flies into wrath when he hears it,' says Johnson. A subdued buzz is heard and the master comes forth, gorgeous in a suit of purple velvet. His powdered wig and the enormous silver buckles on his shoes set off his figure with the proper accent. His florid face is smiling and Garrick expresses a regret that there are to be no impromptu tragic events in way of chasing players from the stage.' Would you like to meet him? asks the sharp-nosed dean. Garrick and Johnson have enough of the rustic in them to be lion-hunters, and they reply to the question as one man. Yes, indeed! I'll arrange it, was the answer. The leader raps for attention. Johnson closes his eyes, sighs, and leans back resignedly. The others look and listen with interest as the play proceeds. The other day I read a book by Madame Colombier entitled Sarah Barnum only a person of worth could draw forth such a fire of hot invective biting sarcasm and frenzied vituperation as this volume contains when i closed the volume it was with the feeling that sarah bernhardt is surely the greatest woman of the age and i was fully resolved that i must see her play at the first opportunity no matter what the cost and as for madame colombier why she isn't so bad either the flashes of lightning in her sword play are highly interesting the book was born as all good books because its mother could not help it Behind every page and between the lines you see the fevered toss of human emotion and hot ambition. These women were rivals. There were digs and scratches, bandy epithets in falsetto, and sounds like a piccolo played by a man in distress before all this. And these are not explained, so you have to fill them in with your imagination. But the Bernhardt is the bigger woman of the two. She goes her splendid pace alone, and all the other woman can do is to bombard her with a book." The excellence of Handel is shown in that he achieved the enmity of some very good men. Read The Spectator and you will find its pages well peppered with thrusts at foreigners and sweeping cross-strokes at Italian opera and all bombastic beaters of the air who smother harmony with bursts of discord in the name of music. These battles royal between the kings of art are not so far removed from the battles of the beasts. Rosa Bonauer has pictured a duel to the death between stallions and that battle of the stags horn-locked with the morning sun revealing death as victor by landseer is familiar to us all then landseer has another picture which he called the monarch showing a splendid stag solitary and alone standing on a cliff overlooking the valley there is a history behind this stag before he could command the scene alone he had to vanquish foes but in the main in some way you feel that most of his battles have been bloodless and he commands by divine right the divine right of a king, if he be a king, has its root in truth. One mark of the genius of Handel is shown in the fact that he has achieved a split and created a ruction in the society of scribblers. He once cut Dean Swift dead at a fashionable gathering, the doughty Dean, who, delighted in making men and women alike, crawl to him, and this won him the admiration of Colley Sibber, who immortalized the scene in a sonnet. People liked Handel or they did not and among the old guard who stood by him let these names among others be remembered Collie Sibber, gay arbuthnot pope hogarth fielding and Smollett. people who through incapacity are unable to comprehend or appreciate music are prone to wax facetious over it the feeble joke is the last resort of the man who does not understand the noisy denizens of grub street drinking perdition to that which they cannot comprehend always getting ready to do great things seem like fussy pigmies beside a giant-like handle see the fifth act ere the curtain falls on the lives of oliver goldsmith dr johnson steele addison and dean swift dead at the top the last and the others unhappily sent into night and then behold george frederick handel in his seventy-fifth year blind but with inward vision all aflame conducting the oratorio of elijah before an audience of five thousand people the life of handel was packed with work and projects too vast for one man to realize that he deferred to the london populace and wrote down to them at first is true but the greatness of the man is seen in this he never deceived himself he knew just what he was doing and in his heart was ever a shrine to the ideal and upon this altar the fires never died handel was a man of affairs as well as a musician and if he had loved money more than art he could have withdrawn from the fray at thirty years of age passing rich Three times in his life he risked all in the production of Grand Opera, and once saw a sum equal to fifty thousand dollars disappear in a week through the treachery of Italian artists who were pledged to help him. At great expense and trouble he had gone abroad and searched Europe for talent, and, regardless of outlay, had brought singers and performers across the sea to England. In several notable instances these singers had, in a short time, been bought up by rivals and had turned upon their benefactor but handel was not crushed by these things he was philosopher enough to know that ingratitude is often the portion of the man who does well and a fight with a fox you have warmed into life is ever imminent at fifty-five a bankrupt he made terms with his creditors and in a few years pays off every shilling with interest and celebrates the event by the production of sol the dead march from which will never die the man had been gaining ground making head and at the same time educating the taste of the english people but still they lagged behind and when the oratorio of joshua was performed the master decided he would present his next and best piece outside of england jealousy a dangerous weapon has its use in the diplomatic world handel set out for dublin with a hundred musicians there to present the messiah written for and dedicated to the irish people the oratorio had been turned off in just twenty-one days in one of those titanic bursts of power of which this man was capable its production was a feat worthy of the Fromans at their best. The performance was to be for charity, to give freedom to those languishing in debtors' prisons at Dublin. What finer than that the messiah should give deliverance? The Irish heart was touched. A fierce scramble ensued for seats, precedence being emphasized in several cases with blackthorns deftly wielded. The price of seats was a guinea each. Handel's carriage was drawn through the streets by two hundred students, He was crowned with shamrock and given the freedom of the city in a gold box. Freedom even then in Ireland was a word to conjure with. Long before the performance notices that no more tickets would be sold were posted. The doors of the debtor's prison were thrown open and the prisoners given seats so they could hear the music, thus overdoing the matter in true Irish style. The performance was the supreme crowning event in the life of Handel up to that time. Couriers were dispatched to London to convey the news of Handel's great triumph to the newspapers, bulletins were posted at the clubs, the infection caught. On the return of the master a welcome was given him such as he had never before known. Dublin should not outdo London. When the Messiah was given in London, the scene of furor in Dublin was repeated. The wild tumult at times drowned the orchestra, and when the Hallelujah Chorus was sung, the audience arose as one man and joined in the song of praise and from that day the custom has continued. Whenever in England the Messiah is given, the audience arises and sings in the chorus as its privilege and right. The proceeds of the first performance of the Messiah in England were given to charity as in Dublin. This act with the splendor of the work subdued the last lingering touch of obdurate criticism. The man was canonized by popular acclaim. Many of his concerts were now for charity—the Foundling's Home, the Seaman's Fund, Home for the Aged, Hospitals and Imprisoned Debtors—all came in for their share. Handel never married. That remark of Dean Swift's—I admire Handel principally because he conceals his petticoat peccadilloes with such perfection—does not go. Handel considered himself a priest of art, and his passion spent itself in his work. The closing years of his life were a time of peace and honor. His bark, after a fitful voyage, had glided into safe and peaceful waters. The calamity of blindness did not much depress him. What matters it so long as I can hear? He said. And good it is to know that the capacity to listen and enjoy, to think and feel, to sympathize and love, to live his ideals, were his, even to the night of his passing hence. End of section eighteen. Recording by Denise Nordell Modesto, California.